From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and we're coming to you the morning after the New Hampshire primary. We've just got the results, and we're going to be telling you what we think it means in a moment. We're also going to be talking about a vote that's starting to loom pretty large in British politics, the forthcoming EU referendum. My special guest is Dame Athene Donald, one of Britain's leading scientists and a vocal defender of the importance of science in public life. She tells me why politicians so often don't know what they're talking about. Because people can give up science so early, we get polarised into the PPE type, the science type, and never the twain shall meet. I think that's catastrophic. But at the moment, we have people who are just pig ignorant. And why it's still not a level playing field for women. People use the fact that women want to have children as, well, they can't be serious. Whereas if you're a father, it just shows how dedicated you are that you're prepared to spend any time with your children at all. I mean, there are these curious double standards. Stay with us to hear more. First to our regular panel, it's a pleasure to welcome back Helen Thompson, an expert on economics, Finbar Livesey, an expert on public policy, and Chris Brooke, an expert on political theory. And so to New Hampshire. I will tell you very briefly what I think, which is it reminded me of one of my most vivid political memories, which is waking up on the morning of the New Hampshire primary results in 2008 and just being astonished that Hillary Clinton had won because I'd gone to bed like everyone else, having been told Obama was ahead in the polls. He had all the momentum. It was over for Hillary. It wasn't. I then made a second mistake, which is when I saw that she'd won, I thought, oh, normality has reasserted itself. This is a real election, unlike one of those hokey pokey caucuses, which Obama wins. Hillary's obviously going to win the nomination, it turns out. Actually, you can win the nomination by winning the caucuses. So last night I went to bed thinking, oh, prepare for a surprise. There was no surprise, I don't think. The only thing that struck me about the result, and the result was clear wins for both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, is that in Iowa and in New Hampshire, Sanders is polling in actual votes ahead of his opinion poll ratings by about 4 or 5% in Iowa and by closer to 9 or 10%, I think, in New Hampshire, which is also true of Jeremy Corbyn in that he also actually, when the polls came out, said he was going to win the Labour leadership. People said it can't be true. It turned out he did better than those polls. Chris, what was your takeaway from what happened in New Hampshire? The result won't be a surprise to many people. I'm sure the Clinton campaign would have been looking past New Hampshire to the caucuses and primaries to come, especially the uh, large number of contests on Super Tuesday right at the start of March. And expectations have been managed quite a lot in advance of this result. It is a bad result for Hillary Clinton, but I think there are some silver linings I saw the numbers coming out of one of the exit polls that showed that although Sanders had an absolutely enormous lead among independents, Sanders and Clinton were neck and neck when it came to the votes of registered Democrats. Now, different states have different rules about who gets to vote in the primaries, uh, but I imagine that will be some comfort to the Clinton campaign looking forward to contests where only registered Democrats will be allowed to vote. We're aware that not everyone listening to this podcast, not necessarily everyone sitting around this table, knows exactly how the American primary system works. So before we go on and talk about the Republican result, we asked Aaron Rapport to give us a very brief historical primer on how these elections actually run. 
So who can vote in a primary? Well, at the country's founding, the American people weren't too worried about the representativeness of the nomination process. George Washington was twice elected unanimously by the Electoral College. So far, so good. But when Washington decided not to run a third time, there was no consensus around a successor. So members of Congress calling themselves Federalists lined up behind Alexander Hamilton and John Adams, and opposing the Federalists were the Democrat Republicans, led by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. Every one of these four would go on to be president except Hamilton, and yet somehow Hamilton gets to be on the $10 bill. Jefferson gets the nickel and the little-used $2 note, and Adams and Madison are frozen out entirely. It's basically a big beauty contest. Hamilton was recently played by the dashing Rufus Sewell, while starring opposite as Adams was Paul Giamatti, who, let's just say, is beautiful on the inside. In any event, these divisions gave rise to the Congressional Caucus system of nominating presidents, but these were dominated by a handful of the different parties' most influential elected leaders. This system broke down after the election of 1824, in which Andrew Jackson lost the presidency to John Quincy Adams. This was despite Jackson receiving the most popular votes and the plurality of electoral college votes. As a result, national party conventions came to the fore, but these were still dominated by party elites rather than average voters. Of course, the average voter at this time might have been too busy making their own clothes, soap, furniture, cough elixir, butter, and Harry Potter fan fiction to take much notice. By the end of World War I, more than half the states had adopted a primary system to allow the people to vote for the candidates that they would like to emerge as nominees for president. So who can vote in a presidential primary? First, you have to be able to register to vote, meaning state laws on eligibility apply. After that hurdle is cleared, you can participate in one of the two types of primary elections. In a closed primary, people may vote in a party's election only if they are a registered member of that party. Conversely, in an open primary, a person can vote in any primary regardless of their party affiliation, but have to vote solely for a candidate from one party. Republicans and Democrats don't appear on the same ballot, and you can't go down the road and vote for a candidate from a different party after you've made your first choice. Now, California and some other states used to hold what was a so-called blanket primary, which allowed people to choose their favored candidate from multiple different parties. But in 2000, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled this practice unconstitutional on the grounds that nobody likes a waffler. Primary voters are a popular target when people want to blame someone for rising polarization in U.S. politics. They're accused of being ideologically extreme, with caricatured Republicans sporting drill baby drill t-shirts, festooned with oil-covered sea lions, and Democrats with Lenin-style goatees calling for the nationalization of every major industry founded since the turn of the century. That would, of course, be the 19th century. However, in 2008, the political scientist Alan Abramowitz found that polling data showed each party's primary voters are quite in line with the preferences of that party's voters in the general election. Regardless, I think we can agree that primary voters will still continue to get picked on because of how smugly they look wearing those shiny red I voted stickers the polling place volunteers hand out. Don't worry, though. I checked. You can buy a roll of 1,000 of such stickers on Amazon for less than 15 pounds, and that should pretty much set you up for life. Thanks, Aaron. I hope that's now completely clear to everybody. I'm now going to turn to Helen to talk about the Republican result. Overnight, the one thing that did move for those of us who watch the betting markets is that Jeb Bush has seen his odds considerably shortened to win the nomination, which is pretty bizarre given that he came fourth 
only about one in 10 people voted for him. And he spent a hell of a lot of money. And he had almost the entire Republican mainstream media establishment, once they realized that Rubio was in trouble, pivoting back to him and trying to explain how he's better than he looks. Helen, can you explain to me how Jeb Bush comes out of this better off having come forth? I think the crucial thing here is is it's a contest, direct contest between Rubio and Bush, that the mainstream Republican establishment only seems comfortable with one of those candidates. It doesn't seem comfortable with the idea of Kasich. I'm not entirely sure what the explanation for that is, but for the Republican Party establishment, it's a zero-sum game between Bush and Rubio. Rubio's down, so Bush must be up. And Finbar Kasich, he came second. Seen from the outside, he looks like a pretty plausible candidate. People haven't been talking about him much. What, what happens for him? Is there any path from here for him to become the preferred choice of people who are really, really keen that it shouldn't be Donald Trump? It doesn't appear so because, as you said, the Republican establishment has pivoted so strongly towards Rubio and now back towards Bush. Um, he's a perfectly sensible candidate. And in this election, perfectly sensible candidates don't get media attention. So, Helen, it is also true that not just on the Republican side, on the Democratic side too, if you read websites like Real Clear Politics that gather together a range of what's being said in them, primarily in the mainstream media, as I think we have to call it, it's been clear just how much effort there has been to talk up Hillary Clinton and to talk up Jeb Bush. It really doesn't seem to be working. I mean, there is, as far as I can see, absolutely no evidence that having the New York Times say vote Hillary Clinton any more than having Gloria Steinem and Madeleine Albright calling out young women, telling them there's a place reserved for them in hell if they vote for Bernie Sanders is doing any good. Is there anything that the elites can do that will actually persuade people to swing back to their candidates? I don't think that they can, actually. And I think one of the reasons why is is because their presence, the media elite itself, has been put in the election campaign and it's actually been put there most directly by Trump, interestingly. And so if you look at Trump's argument, it connects a critique of an economic class, which he admits he belongs to, a political class and a media class, and they're all in the way of making America great again. And I think that has knock-on consequences on, on the Democrat side as well, in that Sanders used some of the same language, particularly he is interested in critiquing um, oligarchic politics, as I noticed he called it in his victory speech. And so the media are themselves under scrutiny for the role that they're playing in America's politics. So anything that they push is automatically got a push back against it with the kinds of voters who are voting for Trump and for Sanders. So Chris, all of that makes it sound as though it's hard to see Certainly what's going to burst the Trump bubble. When we talked about this last week, there was a hint that maybe Iowa had put, I don't know if you can put a dent in the bubble, but it had sort of put a dent in the bubble. Uh, The bubble is now fully inflated again. um, And it needs to hit something pretty hard to um, blow up. Sanders, it's a different case because clearly, as the primary election moves through various states, Hillary Clinton has serious advantages. But nothing has happened so far to suggest that either of these two fringe candidates as they would have seemed a while ago is anything other than right at the center of these races can you think of something that would really still have the capacity to puncture either a sanders or a trump bid for the nomination it's difficult to think of a single event that could blow up the race like that it's easy when it comes to a candidate like hillary clinton she's under an investigation by the fbi and criminal charges may be filed that would transform the race but against the interests of one of the more mainstream candidates i think that that is right about the insurgents uh, sanders and trump in particular in the case of trump whose political behavior is so unorthodox 
behaving in ways that would normally be the kiss of death for politicians, and it only seems to make him uh, stronger, more brazen, more outrageous, more popular. It is difficult to think of what could straightforwardly derail the campaign, although obviously he may just run out of road and enter into contests where people stop voting for him, and the campaign runs out of energy that way. But there's no sign of that yet. I don't want to get too geeky about this from the world that I come from, which is political theory, I guess. But I do look at this campaign and I think that there is an interesting question, which is, as either Sanders or Trump gets close to the nomination, how does the other side behave? It's a version of something that we might call a prisoner's dilemma, which is you can look at it and think, if they nominate Trump, we should nominate a mainstream candidate because we'll win. Or you could think, if they nominate Trump, our crazy guy, he's not crazy, but our fringe guy could actually win this. Sanders doesn't look like he beats Rubio, but maybe he beats Trump, likewise the other way around. If they nominate Sanders, maybe Trump could actually be president. Is it too sort of ivory towerish of me to think that these things are going to actually start to factor into it, that people have to calculate? They go for their fringe person. Do we double down on our fringe person or do we go back to the centre? The wonderful calculations like that to play around with. It's just very difficult to see how uh, the the electors, the voters, uh, will respond. We'll see movements of various kinds, but they're likely to be movements in both the directions you've mentioned. And it's very difficult from this far out to make an intelligent guess about which kind of movement is most likely to be dominant. Thanks to Helen Finbar and Chris. You're listening to Election, the Cambridge Politics Podcast. We'll come back to discuss the EU referendum and the role of the press here, where many newspapers have started to squeal surrender at David Cameron over the deal that he might be trying to extract from Brussels. Before we speak to Athene Donald, we asked some people on the streets of Cambridge how the current fuss about Europe has affected them. Did they think that the deal that Cameron might get from Brussels was going to have any impact on how they might vote in the referendum? I think it's interesting that the deal is irrelevant. I think it's what people experience of the EU is. And I think for anybody under the age of 40, they know no different of, of, from the EU, whereas perhaps people 40 and above remember when we weren't in the EU. I think that's going to be the point that's going to make a difference with people voting. Yes, definitely. Yes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Tell yeah. me why. Yeah, it makes a lot of difference to how we're viewed and what, how I'm going to vote, if I'm going to vote yes or no. Yeah, yeah it does. If you came back with more than just a scratch on the surface then, yeah, I think at the moment having 28 other countries having to signify any changes is not really anything good for us. I just think he's got his finger on the pulse and he's doing a good job. Yes, I believe in what he's trying to do. Well, with a lot of these um, EU legislations and rulings, uh, we abide by them all. And the likes of Spain and France don't. You know, we're an island. We should be an island. I've never agreed with us being part of the European Union. Yes, because by and large, if his approach to the EU and that of the Conservative Party leads to a referendum which across the UK suggests that the UK should secede from the EU, then I suspect that's the end of the UK. The problem is that Cameron is effectively working on the basis that the neoliberal agenda is the only agenda that matters and that the social union rather than the economic union is completely subsidiary, in fact disposable. I think this is a deeply disturbing approach and one that disempowers virtually everyone who considers themselves a citizen of the EU and the UK. 
Damothini Donald is a physicist, a champion of women in science, and the head of Churchill College in Cambridge. She also writes widely about the importance of scientific understanding for doing politics better. I began by asking her what she thought a British exit from Europe would mean for science in Britain. Britain out of Europe, I think, would definitely be very, very damaging for science. People sometimes try to make a purely monetary argument that, well, actually, we put more money into the science budget than we get out, so why am I worried? And, of course, that's completely missing the point of how science operates. We operate often in large teams. We rely on having the best people from wherever in the world. If you look at our scientific teams, they are often coming from all over Europe and we want to get the best talent and there is no point pretending that if we came out of Europe we would still be able to do that. I'm a member of the Scientific Council of the European Research Council. We watched what happened when Switzerland voted to restrict mobility. They got kicked out, they couldn't access the money, they were deeply upset, they tried to find some fudge and I think we should realise this really would matter for science. The challenge for the politicians is going to be to make these kinds of arguments in a language that people understand. And one of the problems is that Europe is a hard sell because the scale of it makes it seem distant and alien to people. And one of the arguments for science on a European scale is that European science can genuinely scale up and we can do projects. Do you think there's a way that politicians can get this across in a language people will understand? Because the risk is it just sounds like more elitism and that's obviously going to be a big theme of the campaign. Yeah, I think elitism is completely irrelevant. I think the challenge for politicians using science is they don't really understand it and so they probably aren't going to be very convincing. And if you try and use arguments like science is so good for our economy, they they make such simplistic arguments that many people will not be fooled. So I think we should be talking in terms of teams and internationalism and what that does for opening up the expertise in our own population and things like that. As I say, I think people go on very narrow arguments and politicians just aren't well informed about science in order to make a convincing argument. What do you think is the thing that politicians get most wrong about science? Because they they talk the talk sometimes, but I'm guessing you don't think that they... They get what they're saying. I think George Osborne is interesting because a lot of people have talked to him and said he really does get it. But I think, and, and I, I can't comment on that, I have no first-hand knowledge, but I think many politicians want to make very simplistic arguments about how you have university research and people have bright ideas and it turns into a product which makes billions of pounds. And it's not quite that simple. And when we think about what having good scientific capability in this country means, it may mean things like absorptive capacity, the ability of people to take ideas from elsewhere rather than necessarily do it here. We know that university research doesn't turn instantly into products. It's a very, very hard battle. One of the problems in this country is that we have really lost our industrial research base. We haven't had an industrial policy for many, many years. And so all these things actually make the translation of idea into product much harder than politicians want to understand. And the fact that they won't talk about an industrial policy, I think, indicates their lack of awareness of what it really takes. And do you think it matters that so few of them are scientists or have a scientific training? Because it is often said of our current political class that they are very narrow in their perspective. A lot of them have been career politicians. 
but they are also often products of an Oxford PPE degree, arts graduates, lawyers, many of them, very few of them are scientists. Would, would you, you're nodding at me, would you like to see more scientists in government? I think we need more people who understand what science is. Julian Huppert, as the Cambridge MP the last parliament, um, stood out as being someone who'd actually practised science, who is still a research scientist, I mean, he's come back to university. I don't think you necessarily need that, but you need people who understand what it's all about. And I am certainly on the record as saying, I think our education system lets people down because people can give up science so early. We get polarised into the PPE type and the science type and never the twain shall meet. I think that's catastrophic. And I think if our education system actually meant that politicians, even if they did PPE, did have a much better grasp of what is involved, that would be probably more to the point than having more actual trained scientists in parliament but at the moment we have people who are just pig ignorant um i'm sorry should i get on the subject of homeopathy um (laughs) (laughs) you can (laughs) we haven't discussed it yet on this podcast well i mean the fact that we have mps who who cannot understand that the molecular theory says homeopathy cannot work i mean and and these are people who make decisions about whether the nhs should fund homeopathic treatments I, i think this is indicative of the level of understanding of science of some of our MPs and that I think is the fundamental problem. And not just in relation to the EU referendum, we are currently living through a populist age. Our politics is quite not just anti-elitist, it's quite anti-received opinion on quite a lot of questions. There is a suspicion that if an elite or professional group is saying something and the public thinks something different, the public think they may be onto the truth. Homeopathy might be an example of that. I mean, there is a temptation for politicians to try and tap into public discontent with expertise. Yes. I mean, are you are you sympathetic at all to the politicians who are trying to deal with public opinion that is currently and most of it's directed at e- economists. I mean, we have to accept that the the professional group that probably have brought the most shame on their <laughs> profession are economists. But scientists are caught in the flack of this too. Climate change is a classic example where there is real suspicion because it is coming from this closed elite. And I think that is indicative of the fact that too many people in our population, be they politicians or anything else, don't understand how scientists operate, actually. Because... If you take, you know, those leaked emails from UEA. The climate gate. The climate gate emails. There were phrases in there which any scientist would recognise. So playing with the data, for instance, which is a phrase I would use. It doesn't mean massaging it, cheating. It means trying to find the right way to plot it so it makes any sense whatsoever. And I think it's very easy for people who are maybe inherently suspicious, maybe don't want to believe this, to take words and use them out of context because the way a scientist speaks may not be identical. And then the Daily Mail or whatever doesn't make it clear that there are these differences in usage. I think if we had a better appreciation at a GCSE stroke A-level level of what science really, really meant, there might be less suspicion. And so it's one of the reasons the Royal Society, when it produced a report about school education, was talking about empowering citizens and, you know, what you need for a democracy. Because the fact that people are scared and don't understand is a lot of the problem. And that's not just politicians. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone. And with climate change, one of the challenges is that the scientific consensus means different things to people than it does, I think, to scientists. In that any evidence of one or two scientists who aren't seen to take the main view is shown as evidence that the consensus doesn't hold and that's a real challenge if you insist on the consensus and then one or two people pop up and they don't agree aha say the skeptics there is no consensus indeed and the bbc will then present those one or two scientists as balance Um, and it's very unhelpful certainly could we come on to another question this is something that you've written about a lot and have campaigned about i think it's fair to say gender in science is an issue it's still a very male-dominated profession. So is politics. Both are making progress, or there is progress in both. It's quite slow. Um, which do you think is worse at the moment? Probably depends on your character, which you find more intolerable. I think the challenges are very different. I would probably equate politics more with philosophy, actually, rather than with science. And I think talking to PhD students here, female PhD students in philosophy, one of the things they don't necessarily like is this incredibly sort of antagonistic way of of debate. Instead of having reasoned debate, you you try and shout the other person down, which is much more what PMQ is like and stuff. I am sure there are many men who hate that too. It seems a bizarre way of trying to reach consensus. So I think politics is, is... It's a climate I can't see why anyone would want to go into really in Parliament as opposed to local politics or something. And I think the other thing that makes life very difficult, again, for, for men and women is the insane hours. That you know, If you want to have any kind of personal life, it's something of a challenge. I think the problems in science are different. They are probably improving. There have been some shock horror stories coming from the States recently about real sexual harassment. And you know, how bad is that? It's very hard to tell because it's often under wraps. But I think there is still the challenge that if you are a woman you probably have to be rather better to be treated the same way the expectation that you are less competent simply because you're a woman is held by men and women I mean there's plenty of social sciences studies to show this that give identical CVs under male and female names and the female name is always scored less well so there are undoubtedly challenges I think It's different at different stages in the career ladder. I think um, it's very tough at the beginning, particularly in the physical sciences and engineering, where I am. People use the fact that women want to have children as, well, they can't be serious. And that's not peculiar to science. I think that's true in business as well. The idea that if you are a mother, you can't possibly be serious about your job. Whereas if you're a father, it just shows how dedicated you are that you're prepared to spend any time with your children at all. I mean, there are these curious double standards. I think by the level I've reached, people find it, you know, they're quite keen to use me to stick me on panels and things because there are so few women. So I get overworked. You can't win. One of the things that's really striking about both politics and science, as you described it, is the resistance to the idea that you can come in and out, as it were, you could have a very dedicated period of your life devoted to it. 
you could then do something else, whether it's raising children or have some other aspect of your professional life, and then come back. And politics has reached that point too, where it's really hard for people. And part of the problem here is that politicians are getting younger and younger because people don't do politics, do something else and do politics. Mm, mm. They do politics, fail at politics. That's the end of their <laughs> political career. Um, and they are younger. Yeah. Um, and it's really hard and it's a challenge even thinking about it in relation to education because we cram all the education in at the beginning as well, send them out into the world. The PPE students go off and do politics. Do you think these problems are analogous too, that actually what we have for all the talk about people curating their lives and having flexible career structures, it's still very narrow. You do it until you fall off the perch rather than the, you do it, do something else and come back to it. No, I think that's right. Um, it's very hard, for instance, to move as a scientist between academia and industry. And that used to be easier. It's probably still easier in engineering. But to get an awareness of what industry is like, you know, that probably would be beneficial for some scientists. And it is very hard to move in and out. And also for some politicians. And also for some politicians. Yes, it would be good if some of them knew some of this stuff too. So I think there is this idea that you have to go in a linear trajectory or else sort of thing. I think that is very unhelpful in many situations. And there are striking examples of women who have worked part-time or actually taken time out and still gone on to incredibly successful careers. And I think we should do more to celebrate that kind of path. And it could be men too. I, I mean, life happens you know you may have a a elderly parent who you have to spend time nursing or something there are all kinds of reasons that may mean you you can't just go in a straight line and life also goes on longer now as well and life goes on longer there's more time to do it if only people were given the flexibility exactly but if it is assumed that if you haven't become Home Secretary by the time you're 42 or exactly. the equivalent. I don't exactly. know what the science Well, I mean, is. Bit if you know, have six papers in nature or whatever it is, yes, it's a real problem. And we get lazier and lazier about working out what success looks like. So there are these journal impact factors. I don't know if that's a, a factor in your field, but you judge someone by the publication in which their papers have appeared instead of reading the paper. I mean, that's incredibly lazy and rather meaningless. So everyone chases to get into the same three journals in their field. And it produces the winner-take-all culture, which the explosion of information, technology and communication, which was meant to remedy, make it more democratic, it's made it more elitist because... For the reasons you said. Exactly. Uh, it's very easy to measure, therefore that's the answer. I mean, this idea that you have to measure everything in an objective way is just counterproductive. So I'm now going to ask you a direct political question because this comes out of a conversation that we had with Anne-Marie Slaughter on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, talking about the possibility of Hillary Clinton becoming President of the United States. We don't know if it's going to happen. Uh, we're speaking before the New Hampshire primary. That may dent her chances or it may not. But Anne-Marie Slaughter said for her, the most significant thing about the Hillary Clinton presidency wouldn't be that she was a woman, and it wouldn't be that she was a Clinton so much as that she was a grandmother, that she was a woman of a particular age doing the thing that we just discussed, which is having, as it were, a second career, or third career, if her second career was being first lady and her first career was (laughs) being a lawyer. lawyer. Um, So there are three ways of reading a Hillary presidency. It's a Clinton, it's a woman. It's a person of a certain age. It's a long time since uh, someone that old has right. reached that. What's your feeling about this? And we're, obviously we're looking at this from the outside. But Yes, well, I think any of those are labels 
instead of looking at her as an individual and what she's actually got to offer. I've just done what offer. you said about yeah, the nature thing. You have. Which is, you have. You've taken an easy way out. I mean, I hadn't thought of the age thing, but I can see that. But the, how old was Reagan when he was elected? Oh, he was older. I, I would have thought so. And yes. people didn't particularly make an issue about him and being a grandfather. it was definitely his second career as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and his first one was hardly very distinguished. Um, uh, but I should say, Anne-Marie Saucer, she's not saying it's a bad thing no. to be grandmother. She's saying it's a great thing well, it, to celebrate. Well, I mean, it is interesting. But uh, but I think, you know, I would rather think, well, what has she done? Um, I find the idea that she's uh, Mrs. Clinton appalling because if we look at the Bushes, what are they? You know, he, Jeb is a brother and a son. And, you know, that doesn't get quite the same traction. I find it all very sad, actually, that, that we have to, to label her instead of judging her on her policies. And I think it's interesting also, people say she's very cold, and that's not a word you would hear used about men. And I mean, there is always this thing about gendering of adjectives, descriptors, whatever. And I think she's really suffering from that, regardless of you know whether she is cold or whether that matters. I mean, I think it's just we, we choose different words to describe women, and that's unhelpful. I, mean, I think it is true that politicians generally, I, I completely take your point that it's lazy to label them. Politici- politics is a game of labels in lots of ways. Yeah. But I also completely take your point that the labels and the standards are different. I mean, I think in a British context, Theresa May does get labelled in different ways from the other leading politicians yeah. in this country. Yeah. It's not that they, they all get an easy ride and she doesn't, but there are certain kinds of caricatures that apply to what's seen as a tough woman politician and Harriet Harman got labelled in other ways yes I think that's right and I think that is pervasive in our society it would apply to young women in particular someone like Stella Kresig the kind of problems she's had and the vitriol she's received for being a young blonde you know it's shocking and it is true this is the word is coming from the United States that something similar is happening there that happened with Corbyn's election here that the Bernie Sanders campaign the social media version of it has a really strong streak of misogyny in it because of the way that they're attacking Hillary Clinton. And certainly there was a sense that some of the people around or supporting Jeremy Corbyn were also, instead of Creasy as one example, on social media saying things that don't make it feel like we're making progress, make it feel like we're going back. Well, social media is a, a pretty bizarre medium. I should say I'm on Twitter. And, and I should say I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> and and you look at what people say, and it is, you know, 140 characters, no nuance. It is disturbing, and the speed with which decisions are made and misinformation spread around, it is it is extraordinary. So to finish, are you, this is again a very big question, but are you still broadly optimistic that these male-dominated professions, science, politics, are moving relatively quickly towards something closer to being a level playing field for men and women? Or do you think that these problems, the things that you described, are really still pretty entrenched? I think they're pretty entrenched. And it's because society has these cultural values, I think. I I mean, you only have to look at the way the newspapers report stories and things. I don't think it's science specifically or politics. The fact that we gender language about children from birth, I think, is immensely damaging. I think what has changed radically, well, since probably slightly before I was born, is there are no longer absolutely fixed, you can't do this. But there are nevertheless all kinds of norms that are hard to to break through. So it's not that if you are a teacher, you have to stop working when you get married, and it's only in the 50s that that went. But you may find it much harder to be a head teacher 
if you're a woman and a man. It's that kind of thing. It's subtle. Thank you to Athene Donald. And now back to our panel. Finbar, to pick up on what we heard about from people in Cambridge, what do you think? Is there anything that Cameron can do now in the negotiations in Brussels that's really going to impact on how people vote when the referendum comes around either this summer or this autumn? I think it's less to do with what he does in Brussels and in the room. It's much more to do with how he presents himself and how he presents what's happening in the room back here to both his party and to voters in the UK. We're in this interesting pause moment. We have to wait now till the 18th to get clear detail on what's actually going to happen in the negotiation. We've got some early signs, but we're kind of really waiting for actual detail. The letter from Tusk didn't give us clarity. It it confused the issue. I think a lot of people are looking at this, to be honest with you, and are frankly bored with it. And so there's actually a real issue to engage a decent turnout for a vote that will happen potentially in June, possibly into July. And I think we're in a very, very difficult situation, as we've talked about a lot now, that the polls are also heavily misleading us. So we don't have any headlights to know whether or not the Leave campaign or the Remain campaign are tipping the balance towards themselves. The last thing for Cameron is how explosive will the negotiations in the party be and how much will that conversation spill out into the media and into the decision process of voters. If it gets very, very raucous in the Conservative Party, things can be very, very difficult. I'm going to come back to the polls in a second. But Helen, just to go back to what Finbar was saying, a lot of people are bored by it. But the people who edit many of Britain's newspapers seem extremely excited about the negotiations in Brussels and keen already to say that it's a sellout, it's a whitewash, it's a surrender it's the end of sovereignty, it's the end of Britain, and so on. Have they gone too soon on this? I mean, this is a glimpse of what they're going to do come the campaign. And the other question that relates to this, in America, we've tried to suggest that what the mainstream media does doesn't have any impact on this anti-oligarchic politics. But in this case, the media barons are in tune with the angry people. I mean, they are actually trying to foment the anti-establishment line here. So might the newspapers in this case really make a difference. I think what's very interesting here is if you look at the situation before Christmas, it looked like the the media that's been particularly critical at the moment, the Sun and the Mail, Telegraph, were going to ultimately line up behind Cameron's position. What we've actually seen is a shift to a a much harder Eurosceptic position than the one that they looked like that they were moving to. So in part, the media seems to be responding to the way in which Cameron has handled the negotiations so far. But you're absolutely right, when it comes to the election, if they stick in that position, which I think is ultimately open to question, but if they they do stick, it creates a very different dynamic than what's going on in the United States Um, at the moment because they will be the ones as part in some sense of the establishment who are fueling an anti-establishment tide and the other thing I think that's important here to see is is that this is an issue on which somewhere between 45 and 55 could go either way and so Britain is a fundamentally divided country about this um, question in a way in which we're not entirely clear what America is divided about yet. We know that there are a lot of angry people who are voting for the so-called populist candidates, but where the centre ground is in the American election, we don't actually know. Whereas we do know, I think, what the range of the contest is in the British referendum. So can I just ask you a tiny bit more about that? Effectively, what you're saying is that 
American politics and British politics, they're both very divided at the moment. And in America, there are these clear partisan divisions, and we're trying to see where the centre ground is. Whereas in this case, there is a large centre ground, but the centre ground itself, as it stands, is undecided. So this makes the EU referendum, in many ways, we think the American election is this crazy, unpredictable race. But actually, the EU referendum, as you're saying it, is the thing that's really unpredictable here. I think that it is. And that's because the the voters who you would normally identify as in the centre ground, voters who are capable of determining general elections, seem also capable of voting remain or leave on the EU. They might be more inclined ultimately to the remain position because it's a safer position. But we can see in the Scottish case that that centre ground is a a moving ground and that what was the case uh, in the referendum itself had shifted three months after the referendum. So it's a centre that's not holding in quite the same way in the British case. And Chris... We don't want to talk about polling too much because we've talked about it a lot. But in this case, there is really striking difference between online polling and phone polling. The phone polling still has staying in the EU 15 points ahead. The online polling tends to say leave is ahead. And then our friends at YouGov, and we may be speaking to them later on in this podcast, partly about this, they often tend to go out on a limb. And their most recent poll had leave I think seven or eight points ahead. There's always a danger that you fight the last war. So in the general election, online polling looked wrong, phone polling looked much closer. So there's grounds for confidence for the Remain camp, which is that the real polls are with us. But might that be last year's battle and that this is a different kind of contest with different possible biases in the polling? I'm sure that's right. And there's always a danger of fighting the last war. There's always a danger of fighting the last referendum, both sides, but especially the stay side, especially the Labour supporters of the stay side, uh, will be haunted and perhaps even paralysed by their fears of repeating the political dynamic that was so disastrous for the Labour Party over the Scottish referendum last year. Going back to the polls... There's something intriguing about this discrepancy between the online and the phone polling, because the phone polling, which was more accurate at the time of the general election, were the polls that uh, had more conservative voters. And in the end, it was the online polls in particular that overestimated the uh, support for other parties that proved to be so defective. If there's still a gap, and it's the phone polls that are saying that people are more likely to stay. That's interesting, because the phone polling samples seem to be the ones that are more likely to get older voters. And the conventional wisdom is usually that it's older people who are more Eurosceptic, with a younger generation uh, that's more um, open to the idea of British participation in Europe. Uh, So if there is that discrepancy in polling, it seems to be interesting from that point of view. It may just be that the older voters in general are more keen on the Prime Minister and more willing to vote as he would like them to. Finbar, there is another possible explanation that was picked up by one of our contributors earlier, which is there is a generational difference between people who can remember Britain not being in Europe and therefore have some sense of what the choices are and people for whom being in Europe is a fact of life and they're generally not happy with the facts of life at the moment. So is there a possible generational divide here? Generational divides are something that are very pronounced in politics at the moment. Is it possible that actually young people are more Eurosceptic? It's quite possible and the generational divides are real. Um, I think the issue going back to what Chris said as well is what will happen in terms of turnout by age bracket. You know, the traditional things of the younger voters tend to vote less, etc, etc. That's not what happened in the Scottish referendum. 
the thing for me is the passion that was present in the Scottish referendum won't be present for me in this referendum around remain or leave. If that's true, I don't think you see such a strong turnout from the younger voters. And if they are more Eurosceptic, that then leans back towards remain. But to be honest with you, I think we're all still very much in the dark and we're not going to get any clarity for another month or more until we get clear detail on what happens on the 18th and clear detail on how it's presented in the media. Thank you to Helen, Finbar and Chris, to our special guest, Athene Donald, and to our production team of Catherine Carr, Barry Colfer and Lizzie Presser. Thanks also to our friend and colleague Aaron Rapport, to whom we wish a speedy recovery. We hope to have him back very soon. Next week, I'll be talking to the historian Gary Gerstel about police power and paranoia in American politics. We'll also be starting our look at elections around the world, beginning with the Ugandan elections on the 18th of February. We'll be explaining what it means and why it matters. Do please join us then and do visit our website at Polis Election Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can find us on iTunes, where you can also subscribe. My name is David Runciman, and this has been the Cambridge Politics Podcast Election. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.